Well, Merry Christmas Eve to everyone. It's a uh, different thing that we don't do very often with not only a Christmas Eve service, but uh, worship tomorrow morning. But I'm glad to see you tonight and glad that we can spend a moment of your family traditions looking at what Christmas is about, looking at the things that matter most. And so I'm excited to look at Philippians this morning. And the reason, if you want to turn there, we're going to look at Philippians, um, is that it'll be interesting to do it as well in the do a short period this morning. But because we've been in the book of Revelation Sunday morning, and in Revelation we've seen Jesus as the conquering king, or as we've seen in chapter 5, that he is the worthy lion and the worthy lamb. Revelation is mostly lion, as we've seen. The vision of Christ in chapter 1 um, sounds lion. It's the, the focus there is on his fierceness, his strength, his kingly nature. But when it says he's the lion and the lamb, the lamb focuses on the fact that he is kind and he is willing and he is meek. He is patient as the lamb. And so thinking of what to do this evening, we think about Christmas and we think about where we've been with Revelation. It seemed to make sense to me to focus on the humble king, to focus on Christ as the lamb, as I know we're going to be not only tomorrow looking at him as the worthy lamb, yes, but in a different setting of him returning and then in the judgments in Revelation 6 and forward, but to focus on what we typically focus on during the Christmas season, which is that baby swaddled in a manger. Not just any baby, but obviously God incarnate. And so hopefully by the end we'll be able to sing the same song as we will see tomorrow in Revelation 5.12, that worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And so in many ways you could say this is kind of part one, tomorrow's part two, but this will be looking at the humble king that is the Lamb. So we're focused there this evening. You know about to Philippians chapter 4. I'll have it up on the screen as well. Because we're not in Philippians, there's a little bit of groundwork to cover. And one of the things that I want to cover is what Philippians is about. Why is it being written in there? At the very end of the book, it's only four chapters long, he says this, and you find his purpose that he's writing. He says, nevertheless, to the church at Philippi, the Apostle Paul, nevertheless, you have done well to fellowship with me in my affliction. And that word fellowship or partnership, depending on how you translate it, is what pops up over and over again. And what they have done, how they have partnered, he says, that you yourselves also know, verse 15, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel. After I left Macedonia, no church fellowshiped, again that word, no church partnered with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. And if you were to read in one setting real quickly all four chapters of Philippians, you'd start to go, okay, this makes sense. This is Paul's thank you to the Philippian church to say, thank you, you supported me, you partnered with me. And he kind of launches from that purpose, that's why I'm writing to you, to instruct them as well. And he wants to not only 
say thank you for the gift, but he wants to instruct him on this bigger topic of what it means to partner in the gospel. Before we get to our text in chapter 2, you see in chapter 1 that same theme that I think he says at the very beginning of the book, verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all because of your fellowship, again that same word, partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Just a few verses later in verse 7, for it is only right for me to think this way about you all because I have you in my heart since both in my chains, he's in prison at this time, and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are fellow partakers, same idea, partners with me in this grace. And later at the beginning of chapter 4, you, if you were studying the book, you'd find no surprise that he addresses an issue where there is conflict. And his answer to the conflict is what we're going to get to in a moment. But just so you understand a little bit is these two ladies are not getting along. And his advice in chapter 4 is, Therefore, my brothers, loved and longed for my joy and crown. In this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Yodi, Yodi, and I urge Syntyche to think the same way in the Lord. Indeed, I also ask you, genuine companion, help these women who have contended together, idea of contending, partnering together, alongside of me in the gospel, with also Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, rest of my partners, whose names are in the book of life. His concern is to say, yes, thank you, you've done well, you've partnered in giving, but I want to encourage you that we need to continue to partner for the gospel. And so Paul can be in prison, and the gospel can still go forth because he has partners in it throughout Asia Minor here that he's talking to, including the church at Philadelphia here at uh, the church at Philippi. So come down to chapter 2, and there's one essential ingredient to the gospel partnership, to true gospel partnership. And that essential ingredient to true gospel partnership is humility. And he's going to highlight that in chapter 2. This is what you need. If you're going to do this idea, if you're going to partner together, if you're going to partner in the gospel, you're going to have to think of others more highly than yourselves. And he can't help but go to the absolute pinnacle of that humility in Christ himself. And his humility is best shown in him becoming, putting on flesh. And that is described here in these first eight verses. So we're going to read together eight verses. So bear with me. But we're just going to focus on four. So we're going to crank our way through. But it's important, I think, to have the context here in verse 1 where of chapter 2. He says, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any, and note all the words here, fellowship of the Spirit, in any affection and compassion, fulfill my joy that you think the same way by maintaining the same love, being united in spirit, thinking on one purpose, doing nothing from selfish ambition or vain glory, but with humility of mind regarding one another as more important than yourselves. Not merely looking out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this way of thinking in, our, in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance of as, as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In Revelation, 
the lamb is going to be contrasted against, very often, the dragon. Here in Philippians chapter 2, you see the way of the lamb. The dragon is clear in Revelation that it is Satan. And there is a way of the dragon. There is a path towards Satan. Satan who desired to be like God in his pride and was thrown out of heaven. And Christ is the opposite of that in his humble nature, willing for love, for obedience to the Father, to put on flesh. This is the way of the Lamb. Just focusing in on verses 5 and 6, you're going to see that humility is the way of the Lamb. This is a way of thinking, he says. This is a way of looking at the world. This is a way of living, a mindset. It's very clear. Jesus does not need anything. Saying he is fully God in perfect fellowship with the Spirit and the Father. He does not need to come out of any insufficiency. And yet, you see, he humbled himself and he did come. Yet he did not view here in verse 5, in verse 6, this idea of equality, it says, with God, who although existing in the form of God, which simply is a way of saying and expressing that he is part of the Trinity, he is God, did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped. That was not the priority. The priority for Christ was not to not suffer. The priority was to be obedient to the Father, to prioritize the Father's will, in this case, when he comes for a purpose to save a people for his namesake, even, as he goes on, if it's death on a cross. And in this way, Jesus becomes our example, is what Paul's getting at. This is practical. This is, very, this is ethical, if you want to use that term. Live like Jesus. Now, Jesus is more than an example, but he's, he's never less than an example. Another place you see similar language comes in 1 Peter chapter 2. He uses the same kind of language where here he suffers. For to this you have been called, since Christ also suffered for you. And 1 Peter is all about conduct and suffering, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. The one who did not sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, who being reviled was not reviled in return. While suffering, he was uttering no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. This is example language. Be like Christ in this way, particularly in the context of suffering, and particularly in the context, I believe, here of working together for the sake of the gospel. Show humility here. Suffer and trust yourself. Verse 24, who himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that having died to sin, we might live to righteousness. By his wounds we were healed. You were continually straying like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. And so Peter instructs them in that similar way that Christ is, again, he's more than an example, but he is not less than that. He is our Savior, but yes, he also serves as the example for us in every way, but especially here in the way that he humbled himself and the one who has the right to be king, the one who has the right to not put away what he desires because he is rightfully on the throne. If he does that, then how much more us who oftentimes, most of the time, don't have the right in that way at all. Humility is the way of the lamb. 
And if you want to partner in the gospel, if you want to serve the church, you want to serve, think of Christmas and family, serve your families. If you want your life to be a living sacrifice, as Paul says in Romans 12, there's only one path to take, and that's the path of humility, the way of the lamb expressed here. Particularly, you kind of go, what does that mean? How, do you, how would you define humility? Well, it can't get any better than the way it's defined in those first four verses. He says to verse 2, fulfill my joy that you would think the same way. What is that way? That's the way of maintaining the same love, being united in spirit, one purpose. So you're striving at every end and every goal to say, remind ourselves we're after the same things. We're on the same team. But particularly verse 3, even though you're running towards the same goal, we still are in the flesh and there's still selfishness and there's still pride. And he says, therefore, let me encourage you because you're going to, whether you want to or not, want to do some things, verse 3, out of selfish ambition. He says, rather do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain glory but rather with humility of mind regarding one another as more important of yourselves, more important than yourselves, not merely looking out for your own interests, but also the interests of others. So if you're looking for a good um, definition of humility, it's not the dictionary definition, although this fits within the dictionary definition, but you want a practical definition very much. So here, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Don't just look out for your own interest but also for the interests of others. It's always easy. It's really easy to be nice to people who are going to be nice to you. And Paul says, don't think that way. Why? Because Christ didn't think that way. While we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. We should serve even our enemies. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain glory. Well, secondly— Humility is the way of the Lamb, but humility is also the highest form. Its highest form is sacrifice. That is to say, its highest form is when you do something you don't have to do that actually costs you something. The example that is chief in all of human history is what Christ has done for us. And Paul has no issue pulling that down and saying, look, there are theological truths about who God is and who Christ is that he came and he became and put on flesh, which he explains here. We'll walk through briefly, but he looks at that and says, this is an example for us to follow. Not in that we are like this, but that look at the one who is the greatest, and we who are lesser should follow in the same way. And so you see in verse 7, he, it says, at least in the legacy standard, I believe in English standard, a lot of you have ESV, it's going to say this word of, he emptied himself. And that phrase is kind of a lot of, you see the English word and there's a lot of theological debate over what does that mean. And kind of know at least that it can't mean that Jesus ever becomes less than God. The focus of the word here, uh, the the Greek word, is I think best understood and using an example from another passage because it's used and I think in a way that is more of a metaphor and more of to nullify. And by that, it's used in Romans 4.14 this way, for if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void, which is that Greek word kineo, and the promise is nullified. 
And so often you come to Philippians 2.7 and you go, what did he empty himself of? And that's not really the right question. In the same way, no one comes to that Romans passage and will say, of what has faith been made empty? Because again, for the, if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made empty or made void. All he's saying is this is the conceptual idea that Christ made himself, that is, he didn't prioritize himself, which we've already seen that. He made himself of no effect. King James, I think, is helpful in the way they translate it. It says that Christ made himself of no reputation. He didn't put himself forward. He didn't obtain the rights that he deserved. He made himself nothing is the idea But I'd argue, contextually, the the strongest answer, the strongest way to define this is to look at the very next few words. Verse 7, but he emptied himself, and then it says two ways that he emptied himself, or he nullified, or he made void, or he made himself nothing by doing two things. And this is an important distinction. Two things that were addition, not subtraction. He doesn't become less divine. He doesn't lay aside his attributes. Rather, he adds to himself. He adds to himself by, one, taking the form of a slave, that is one who has no rights, and by being made in the likeness of men. Peter O'Brien in his commentary says that slavery pointed to the extreme deprivation of one's rights. I think we all have a category for that. How is he humble? He takes his rights and he lays his rights aside. Not his attributes, not his power, not his divinity. But he says, I'm not going to exercise the rights that I deserve. And in that way, why? He takes on the form of one who has no rights. Being a baby born in a cave, laid in a manger. In his incarnation, he takes on the limitations of human flesh that he might, Hebrews 5.8 says, learn obedience. Luke 2 says, to grow in wisdom. Doesn't need to do that, but he chooses to do that. And ultimately, Romans 5, he does so to undo the curse that entered the world through Adam. It's addition, not subtraction. Jesus is saying it was a real reality that he really put on flesh. Something really happened. He did so, though, becoming fully man, yet without ceasing to be fully God. All analogies are going to fall short, at least in trying to describe the divine, right? Just at the end of the day, we don't have good analogies for that because we live in a fallen, imperfect world. But one example I did come across that was somewhat helpful was just a literary example from Mark Twain's Prince and the Pauper. It's a story about Edward, the son of King Henry VIII. You may have seen the Mickey Mouse version like my kids, or you might be the good literary scholars. I know you all are and have read the book. But in The Prince and the Pauper, it's a very simple story of the prince who changes place with the poor boy named Tom. So Prince Edward leaves all the riches and all the comforts of the throne, and he goes and he lives where the poor Tom lived. He has to deal, and I even remember seeing this as a play in grade school, but deal with Tom's drunken and abusive father along with all the other miseries that go along with poverty in that time. But during that time, the young prince never ceases 
to surrender his identity. He simply veils it. He's never not the prince. He just doesn't show everyone he is the prince. At any point, he could say, I am the prince. He could declare his right and he could say, I don't have to be here. I can be over there. But he doesn't do it throughout till the end. He possesses his royalty the entire time. But there's a sense in which you could say it's not fully expressed as long as he has chosen to submit himself to life as a beggar. Which is why, not only in the Gospels, not only in Christmas, that's not the end. That's why you have Revelation. That's why you have the return of Christ. It isn't that he stays there, but that he is going to be exalted He was human in the fullest sense, yes, but we're going to see that expression that he's also fully God. Especially you see that power and authority that comes through throughout the rest of the New Testament as well. Well, why would a a king do this? Why would someone ever willfully do that? Because we ask ourselves, you might, would you do it? And I go, I don't know if I would. I might try to help somebody, but I don't know if I want to get off and personally suffer myself. But why would a king? Why would here Christ in chapter 2, why would he do that? Why would he put others before himself? Well, it's simply because the divine attribute that God is love. We know the verse well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The king does so out of love. He adds, by taking on the form of humanity, humbling himself. Why? So for the very purpose that he, by becoming obedient, verse 8, to the point of death, even death on a cross. Because if you don't have that, you don't have any way for sin to be atoned for. So Christ has done that so that others might not see him just as a baby in a manger, but as a savior that doesn't remain on the cross, but is buried and raised again on the third day, that you can have hope and life in him. And then you can understand what comes after here in verses 9, 10, and 11. And Paul says, Therefore, because Christ has done this, what is true? This is true, that God also then highly exalted him. He bestowed on Christ the name which is above every name, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's a reminder that this is a beginning point. Christmas is not the end. And so even as we celebrate, you have to add what comes in the cross and what will come in the future as well. And so that we sing not only the carols about who he is, but sing with the church, as we'll see tomorrow. Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and blessing. Father, help us to focus on what Christ has done for us. Help us to think about the true meaning of Christmas and all we enjoy so much of gathering together. We don't forget why 
we celebrate. Why we celebrate that Christ became born a babe, a man. That by doing so was the highest act of humility, but done with a purpose that he might live, that he might minister on this earth for three years, all for a purpose, all towards your plan, that he might die on a cross for our sin, that we might believe in him and have life forever. Remind us that he is not only a humble king, but that he is also a coming and conquering king. Keep both of those on our mind tonight and tomorrow as we celebrate together. And may we honor you in all that we do. We just pray this in your son's name. Amen.